This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the podcast for Eye on Education. It's our chance to put the spotlight on all the top news stories from the world of education this week. We discussed the growing problem of obesity in children in the UAE as the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority makes the issue a priority. We also found out the best performing universities in the UAE and the wider region with the team from the respected Times Higher Education Survey. Plus, why is it so easy to cheat nowadays at university? We spoke to Professor Michael Draper, an expert on academic integrity. And what are the realities of teaching refugee children in a temporary school. We spoke to the Acting Director of Education for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there, it is 11.06. Welcome back to the programme and it is time for our special segment, Eye on Education, which is our chance to look at all the top school, nursery and university stories that have been hitting the headlines this week. And I suppose the top story uh, for any pupil in either Abu Dhabi or Dubai has got to be this massive cause for celebration. Uh, the announcement from both ADEC and the KHDA that... It, they will enjoy a full week off for Eid al-Fitr, uh, a festival marking the end of Ramadan, of course. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Don't give a radio presenter a group of sound effects because otherwise they get overexcited I on a know. Friday and they play them unnecessarily. <laughs> give them a variety of sound effects. Give us a variety of sound effects. Yes, yeah, so enormous news. Uh, basically, they'll be off from Monday, May the 2nd to Friday, May the 6th, which means that when you go to pick up your children in 53 minutes' time, they won't go back to school till Monday, May the 7th. Wow. Whoa. That is awesome news for them. So I hope you've packed the week with activities. But here's the thing. Um, for parents, if you're working some days next week, what will your, chi- will your children be doing? Are they going to stay at home alone? Will you be arranging for childcare? Are you leaving them with friends? Or are you yet to figure it out, just yeah. like me? It is a genuine nightmare because it's one thing. It's all very well for the children to be off all week. Uh, and it's okay for people who have help at home. You know, you can lean on your nanny a little bit and get a bit of help, extra help that way. But the reality is, is, I mean, I've got several friends who are lawyers. And, and they can't, like, you know, it's non-negotiable. If it's, if it's not a public holiday, they can't just sort of semi-hang around with the kids, semi-write a, a, a pressing legal argument. Yeah. There's just, it's just non-negotiable. So I think maybe, I don't know, I, I, I'm, quite, I'm quite surprised at how, uh, at how unjoined up things have been on this on the holidays. I'm quite surprised. Normally, everything's really quite strategic and everyone knows exactly what's going on. You know, the public sector gets X amount of holidays. The private sector has been brought in line with the public sector. But that doesn't seem to have sort of happened in quite the same way. I suppose, arguably, it has already been a sort of quite a year of changes to the working week, hasn't Mm -hmm. it? The government has already changed the working week from, you know, Sunday to Monday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then we have a half day today if you work for the government um, or for federal offices. And so maybe... Maybe they've taken the view that considering the private sector has already been told that it needed to change its working week, maybe it's a bit much to also make them have a week off. 
<laughs> maybe that might be the view. Or to your point, there's more flexibility, so maybe some parents will be allowed to work from home and stay with their kids. I love that you've written. There's a bonus here. There's bonus. a bonus. There's always a silver lining. So parking in Dubai is free all week. Pay parking resumes on the seventh Saturday. Just keep that in mind, parents, if you're going out and about with the kids. I got a text message from my husband last night around about ten past ten. Because guess you got a parking ticket last night. Oh my goodness. I just, I'm just averaging about one every four days at the moment. <laughs> it's basically I go to work to pay Dubai municipality to like to make the roads. I, th- I mean, literally, I think next time you look at a new bridge, there's a new bridge. They should put my name on it. Georgia Tolly built this. Oh, my God, you're hilarious. Paid by Georgia Tolly's parking fines. Just remember it. Just set an alarm on your phone. I think that's what Tom does now because he used to get a lot of fines. Did he? Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's one. I tell you, I mean, last night I had no excuse, but when you're on the radio, it is quite all-consuming, to be fair. You know, you aren't quite preoccupied. It's not like, oh, I'll just go for a quick coffee or I'll just pop to the loo. I'll just do my parking. Can't do anything. You just have to sit and talk. Is there any way that you can uh, pay for parking for a full day or oh, not? That, that doesn't be exist so good. yet. No, it doesn't yeah. exist yet, which is very annoying. Okay, so how about this new green visa that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago? Uh, there were lots of differences, uh, lots of changes made to the visa regulations, all very forward thinking mm-hmm. to encourage uh, more people to be able to come and work in the UAE, uh, not just the sort of really senior uh, white collar professionals, but maybe the more creative industries. How about teachers? Is this good news for teachers? Very good news. And this is the national newspaper's take on uh, the green visa announcement. This will basically be great for teachers. The UAE's move to provide five-year visas to middle-income workers, our teachers fall under, will offer greater stability and flexibility. Uh, and also, you know, uh, the visa offers five-year free residency, as I mentioned, without the need for an employer to be a sponsor. Uh, allows ho- the visa holders to bring their first degree relatives to the country for the duration of their stay. Remember last e- last week we were talking about, uh, you know, home countries poaching teachers from here, poaching their teachers back from here. Yeah, um, because they have basic they basically have like wide teacher shortages. So this is probably going to encourage teachers to stay. Good news, because uh, we all like a little bit of consistency when it comes to teachers and schools. I know that that is one of the major complaints that parents have when it comes to teacher retention, uh, is that the problem with being living in an expat community is that teachers tend to come for a couple of years and then they either change schools or they might indeed go home. Right, loads of people getting in touch with parking. I love that. Love it. I love it. So, uh, Mustafa, thank you very much indeed for your message. You have described the RTA parking card... Um, which is interesting. Uh, someone else has got in touch saying, yes, you can. You can just put in 24 and then you get 24 hours. Oh, wow. Uh, Jess has a question. Is parking free in Dubai today? No, Jess, it is not. It no. was at the beginning of this year, but then they changed it about a month ago. You need to pay for your parking today. Definitely. Please um, don't forget. Don't get a parking ticket. Don't get a parking ticket. Okay, now one of the big stories that we are going to be covering uh, in this education special, in our Eye on Education special, is the University League Tables. The uh, the Times Higher Education University Impact Rankings are well known around the world for basically being the go-to listing. Uh, and they came out this week. Uh, we will be covering the story just after midday uh, with a person from the that organisation, Ellie, uh, who is the rankings officer, will yes. be joining us. Uh, but just quickly, Z, run down the sort of news. You know, who did best, who did worst in the region? Okay, basically in the region, Saudi Arabia's King Abdulaziz University is ranked 
fourth in the world out of 1,406 universities. Uh, it's tied with a Malaysian university, and basically number one is uh, Australia's Western Sydney University. And there's a number of universities in the region. Uh, so I said uh, Saudi, uh, it's number four. It's, there's Aswan University in Egypt, uh, number 67. There's a whole bunch of Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian universities on the list. There's also some from uh, Bahrain, Jordan, Palestine, Palestine, and the UAE, of course, University of Sharjah, making it to the top 300. We'll tell you all about it later, uh, just after 12. Absolutely. Uh, Very good news there. Of course, there are all sorts of different rankings. They don't just rank it, for example, on um, excelling in education, for example. They also have rankings for work on sustainability and elements uh, such as that. So we will run through all of those sort of different intricacies. Uh, Certainly, if I was... I mean, that, that raises the question, what do you look for in a university? I have to say that if I was going back to uni, I wouldn't give a stuff about how good it was at sustainability. I'd I'd be like, am I going to get a good degree? Is the teaching good? Are the fees reasonable? How 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 green the building is! Literally, I'd be like, I just don't care. It certainly wasn't a priority then. <laughs> yeah, definitely not a priority for me. Um, okay, so the other big story which we will be covering next hour, uh, just after midday, is essay cheating, which apparently is massively on the rise. Students are being incentivized to cheat at university because of these things called commercial essay mills. Now, what are they? So they're basically, uh, you know, essay writing services that you can find online and they offer buy one, get one free deals. They offer loyalty schemes. So, you know, I write 10 essays for you. You get two essays free. It's outrageous. Uh, high street style cashback offers, etc. Um, and uh, this is out of the UK. Experts, experts warned of a growing normalization of cheating in higher education. And, you know, you, even if you look on websites like Fiverr, someone can write an essay for you um, in less than 24 hours. I mean, it's astonishing how much or how many resources are available for uh, university students, not necessarily legal or good for them. I have to I have to say, you know, there were times when I was in an essay crisis hell, you know, and you'd, you, you'd reach the end of term and you needed to send in your essay. And in order to send in the essay, you have to have read five of Charles Dickens books. And each of them averages about 1200 pages of quite dense print. And you've got a week to go to read two of those books because you haven't managed to get them all done and write the essay those moments would have been you know it would have been tempting if these things existed then I definitely would have been tempted would you have been tempted at uni of course I would be a hypocrite if I said no but yeah this is definitely not good for your writing skills this is eye on education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people Right then, this summer, the Abu Dhabi Early Childhood Authority is making the issue of childhood obesity in the Emirate a priority, with a task force headed by nutrition experts, paediatric doctors and exercise scientists. The move comes as the number of overweight children in the UAE continues to rise at an alarming rate. According to the Ministry of Health and Prevention, uh, the latest statistics show that the prevalence of obesity among children between the ages of 5 and 17 
seen in the UAE was 14.45%. That was back in 2018. So why does the region have such high rates of childhood obesity? Now, one theory is that children simply aren't doing enough exercise, a problem likely to increase during the hot summer months that are up and coming. So what can schools and parents do to help? I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Mohammed Al-Haddad. He is head of bariatric and metabolic surgery at HealthPoint Speciality Hospital in Abu Dhabi. He's also a member of the Early Years Task Force. Uh, Dr. Al-Haddad, thank you so much for joining us on the line. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Thank you very much for having me with you. Uh, I'm very well indeed. Uh, A pleasure. Literally, the pleasure is all ours. Now, tell me, what is the problem that we're facing and and why is it particularly notable in the UAE? This figure of 14.45% is very distressing. Indeed, actually, the the figure is higher than the international figures, which is around around 11% at the time being. But uh, to be honest, the, the, the trend all around the world is going the same way. The estimated number from the World Health Organization uh, to by 2030, more than 50% of the children around the world will be having the problem of obesity. And this will bring the numbers to 250 million child will be having obesity by 2030. Um, the cost will be health, the cost will be money, the cost will be on all, on all aspects. The problem is multifactorial. Uh, most people think it's the exercise or it's the food or it's the screen time or it's the sleep. Actually, it's all of them. It's all these factors. But to keep a healthy weight, number one, we need to have a healthy food. That's number one. We need to eat at home. We need to be away from the junk food, especially with children. Soft drinks, chips, easy food. I call them the empty calories. When when we have the soft drinks or we have the chips, we just have the calories. We don't get any benefit. So food is number one. And exercise is number two. We need to let our children to exercise at least 60 minutes per day. And that 60 minutes has to be a moderate intensity exercise. We always use the excuse of the weather. I don't think this is an excuse. I lived in two extremes of weather and If we are looking for excuses, we will find this. But if we are not, if we are trying to look for solutions, we can find this solution. 60 minutes per day. I'll give you you some figures. Children below the age of three, they should not have a screen time. Between the age of three and five, the screen time should be two hours per week, not per day. Per week? Per week? Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Two hours per week, not per day. Imagine how many children around the world right now, they will have between the age of three and five, they have two hours of screen time and the rest is playing. Not many. Corona didn't help also. That's another one. But unfortunately, we are taking care of the pandemic of Corona, but we did, we're not taking care of the pandemic of obesity. Fortunately, in the UAE, we are taking care of it seriously at all levels at the Abu Dhabi Public Health Center, Department of Health, Ministry of Health, there is task force that work on this regularly. The third factor is sleep. It's a major factor. Children need to sleep at least for eight to nine hours per day. And that eight to nine hours per day, it does not mean it's 2 a.m. in the morning till 10 a.m. in the morning. That's not a proper sleep. 
the sleep should be between 10 and 11 p.m. till 6 or 7 in the morning. This is the regular hours of sleep because this is when our body is having the natural hormones changes, natural hormonal changes we call them in medicine. There are hormones that are at peak at 6 or 7 in the morning. We want to be awake at that time. And there are hormones that are very low at 12 in the night. We need to be asleep at that time. So it's a combination of all these factors that's bringing obesity to a problem. And if we have a child with obesity or with overweight, the probability that he will be an adult with obesity is really high, it's around 80 to 90%. So it is a major problem. There are few steps that being taken, and we hope that this will help, but nothing will help beside the mothers and the family. Well, so this was I'm what I talking wanted to all the mothers. Yes. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you. If you're looking at your child now playing in the swimming pool or, you know, um, wandering around the house and you think, gosh, have they got a bit of podge on them? You know, is there a little bit of podge? Uh, maybe it's just what we used to call when I was growing up puppy fat. But if you are concerned, you know, what can you do? Because, of course, the last thing we want to do is to give a, an eight-year-old a, a complex about being fat. So what's the best, if you, if you see the podge starting, what, what should you be doing? So that's a great question. And that's where we can start. And this is where we can succeed. This is the only place where we can succeed to fight this problem. The pandemic, actually, the pandemic of obesity. So if, if, if a mother or a father seeing a child that he's having a little bit of few kilograms, one or two or three kilograms. You know, even two or three kilograms in a child, three or four years or five years is a lot because it's relative. So if you see something like this, I'll start just watching what the child is eat. I just watch the food. I will make the child eat at home. And this is a major message. Eat at home. If you eat at the restaurants, if you eat junk food, that junk food is all calories. If you eat a hamburger at home, it's different from a hamburger outside home because of the food industry, they change a lot. I don't think the food industry will like me ever when I say that, but this is the truth. So if I have a child who's having problem, even with one or two or three kilograms, all what I need to do is to watch what he eat. I cannot prevent a child from eating a chocolate or eating a nice ice cream but I will make it once or twice a week, but not two or three times a day. This is very important. So, I will prevent the snacks or I will make the snack healthy snacks. Instead of any chocolate bar, I will use an apple. And if we do that with the children, the children, they have very high metabolic rate. They burn fat so easily. They burn calories easily. So if I do that for a couple of months, bring the weight back to normal, this is where I go. So the problem or the solution start with the parents from home. Dr. Mohammed Al-Haddad, really, you managed to get so much information over in such a, a, a short span of time. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Fantastic to speak to you. Uh, and let's definitely stay in touch. I have a feeling that figures may come out uh, post-pandemic to show that, unfortunately, COVID-19 did indeed have an effect on our children's waistline. So I, I'm sure we'll be we're speaking again very soon in the future. Thank you for your time.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That is Dr. Mohammed Al-Haddad, Head of Bariatric and Metabolic Surgery at HealthPoint Speciality Hospital in Abu Dhabi. He's also a member of the, uh, the Early Years Task Force. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Welcome back. We are discussing the problem of childhood obesity on the programme this morning, a problem that sadly we anticipate might have worsened over the COVID-19 pandemic. So how can we stop our early years children getting fat, particularly when it is hot in the summer and hard to go outside and exercise? And just to give you an indication of how there are still definitely I don't know, sort of hesitations around saying certain words. I mean, I just I just felt slightly guilty about saying children getting fat on the radio. When that is what it is, I don't think we should skirt around the issue. They're getting fat and they need to get thinner. I am speechless because I haven't used that word on air in a few years. Yeah, fat. Children are fat. Do you think it sounds better the more times you say it or do you think it's actually worse? I can't work it out. But no. children are getting fat and I see them in the malls and the fact is that the figures bear it out. 14.5%, that was back in 2018, of children are obese. That means they are fat and it needs to change. Now, joining us on the line now uh, with some helpful hints on how we can keep our children fit and healthy is James Bennett, who is Head of Sport for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. James, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us on the line. I'm very well, thanks. Good morning, Georgia. Good to speak to you. And of course, I mean, sport is a pretty big part of the British curriculum, isn't it? And, and, And Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai is a British curriculum school. Yeah, it is huge. I mean, I was lucky enough to do uh, nine years at uh, the RGS um, back home um, in, in Guildford. And uh, yeah, it was big then. Uh, to come over here, I'm, I'm still a relative uh, newbie, but to come over here for our September start, it's uh, I'm, I'm glad to say it's just as big here. It's uh, a huge part of our curriculum. So we break it down into three areas. We have curriculum PE lessons uh, for all age group, uh, then games lessons as well. So that's the mainstream team sports that we play in line with uh, the Dubai Association of, of School Sport playing uh, representative matches and then we have swimming as well as all of the after school activities and clubs that um, that the children can choose from themselves. I mean, that's fantastic. We just heard from the guy, uh, sorry, from the guy, you can tell I need to have another coffee. Uh, We just heard uh, from from the doctor there, Dr. Mohammed Al-Haddad, that basically children need to do an hour of moderate to sort of full on exercise a day. Do you think children for the most part get that at school or do you think parents need to be supplementing it at home? Um, yeah, as I say, I am a newbie here, but certainly from what I'm, I've seen at RGS, they get more than an hour a day. Um, in fact, sometimes, to, to be honest, I think a little bit more respite um, in class is, is, is what, what the doctor ordered. If I look at uh, some of our children, they, they arrive uh, for early morning opt-in, no. for instance, netball, rugby um, from seven o'clock. Um, they, they arrive for that. They then do a PE lesson. They'll probably have a curriculum swim lesson. And then there's all of the after school stuff as well. So if it's, it's there if they want it. And from what I've seen from a lot of our pupils and, and parents, uh, they're really supportive in, in giving the children that, that, um, that fitness. Of course, one element of fitness is staying in shape uh, and certainly for adults, but for children as well, I suppose. But the other element is that it's good for your personality. It's good for your personal development and it's good for your mood as well, isn't it? 
Yeah, huge. I mean, the guidance, the curriculum guidance is obviously there for, for how much, for the basic amount that, that children get. But certainly from a well-being point of view, I, I think we've all seen uh, COVID, once COVID hit, it, it definitely affected, I mean, not just children, but adults. And the, the importance of being physically active on your well-being, your social skills, being part of a team. You know, my little girl's only four. She's in FS2. And already I've seen now she's been thrown in the deep end, as it were, over here in Dubai, doing swim lessons, doing uh, twinkle toe ballet, doing gymnastics. I've already seen the, the, the impact that's had on her confidence and her well-being, aside from the, the physical attributes. I mean, of course, some of these activities, especially the extracurricular ones, can be pretty pricey. Um, But that doesn't mean that you can't keep your children active, does it? Because, I mean, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Joe Wicks was offering those free classes and they're still available on YouTube. Yes, good old Joe Wicks. Um, No, I mean, it's fantastic. I think if if COVID, one of the... Well, positives that came from it is actually what we can do inside and having come from the UK where I taught for months online uh, using Joe and, and other apps uh, as well as myself demonstrating online I think the willingness is there and actually if if you've got supportive parents um, and you've got children willing to to get active, then you can do lots in your own home. In terms of um, the extracurricular clubs being pricey, um, I speak on on behalf of RGS. We, we we do offer paid external clubs, all sorts of fantastic opportunities, sailing, golf. I know we've got Ski Dubai on board now, um, so a horse riding. But as well as that, there is plenty of opportunity for the children to do internal free clubs just to extend their their day. So things like basketball, early morning running club, swimming, rugby, football, coinciding with with the sports that are, are done uh, representatively. I mean, I suppose if you've got a small amount of space and and you know no no big garden to run out run around in, if you're in a flat, you do need to find those sort of indoor activities that don't take up much space. What type of things would you recommend for for parents in those circumstances? Yeah, just be innovative. Um, I mean, there's lots out there now on YouTube, um, and and as I said, from COVID, the ideas in in my planning for my lessons, um, I got so many ideas from uh, you know from 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 aiming aiming loo rolls at bins uh, to for your targeting skills, bowling. Um, it just depends, as you said, how big your indoor space is. You know, there's indoor football skills you can do, hit classes, uh, cosmic yoga. That's another one that my my little girl liked. Uh, um, then we've got uh, lots of dance, um, just dance is another one and the thing is with children these days um, they're all so in tune with using iPads and technology that it almost lends itself if if they're willing and as I said if parents are supportive to be able to to keep fit in a small space. Even young children now sadly do seem to prefer watching TV or playing games to doing sport especially I mean maybe I shouldn't say this but especially the girls maybe how do you encourage a couch potato to get into sport? Do you know what, George? I'm going to disagree slightly since I've been out here. I, I just think, and again, maybe it's an RGS pupil thing, um, but I'm sure it's not. I think Dubai has just done a brilliant job in terms of um, putting things on offer for children just to enjoy that like variety is I mean the, the old saying sport for all there really is a sport for everyone in Dubai if I look at I, I was walking around the mall the other day and there was a high rope center you know it's the sort of thing I don't see in the UK and um, there's a surf life-saving course that you can do down on Jumeirah Beach that I'm in, enrolled my little girl into and you know I just think I think that it's really geared over here to opening up different avenues for for children of all abilities just to get involved and to get active even if that's you know going for walks I, I realize the climate 
it is hot and, and we're going into hot weather now, but some of the indoor activities that are on offer and there is cost involved um, for quite a few of them. But I just um, from what I've seen so far, the couch potato element um, is, is definitely, I think, less over in the UAE. Well, that is very good news. I'm glad to hear that because that's your you get you have a unique insight because obviously you were in the UK for so long, uh, witnessing everything that was going on there, and then you've just been over here uh, since September. So it's quite good to get that sort of outside lens on things. Uh, James Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks to get thanks for your insights there, and we'll look forward to speaking to you some stage in the future. No problem. Thanks Thank very you very much, much indeed. That's James Bennett, who is head of sport for Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. OK, so we'd like your hints and your tips. Uh, how do you get your children active? How do you prize them off those screens, the sticky fingers, uh, and get them off those screens and get them out and about doing exercise? I have to say, specifically during the summer, and it's easy to say, oh, you take them to Bounce or to Street Maniacs, but they are pricey. Like, I really resent how much money I have to spend over the summer uh, wearing my children out. So what is a, any, any sort of cheap suggestions for how to keep your children entertained uh, indoors over the summer? Very much appreciated, frankly, on a personal level. Interesting point just coming here from David, Zina. Yes, David says children are fat, but the root cause is parental laziness and over-reliance on quick fixes such as junk food, TV, and iPads. Fortunately, we have a great school and community with our eldest boy, now seven, uh, where he can get regular exercise and swimming. Dr. Muhammad was also bang on about sleep routines for kids. David, we hope to speak to you sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the old sleep routines. My kids, lights out by eight, come hell or high water. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We've really been enjoying our education special over the last couple of hours. Eye on Education, we do it every single Friday from 11 to 1. One of our hot topics today was how we can stop our children getting fat. The problem is, is that 14.5% of children in the UAE are obese, which is way more than most other parts of the world, which average around 11% of children being obese. We were asking, how can you keep your children entertained in a small space over the summer? Because it's easy to say, take them to some of those indoor play centres. But we all know how expensive they are. So how can you entertain your children at home? Uh, people have been getting in touch on 4001, Zena. Lots of really good suggestions. Indoor activities for kids, large cardboard box to decorate or simply to trash it. Turn it <laughs> into a den. Cut out a TV and remote from it. They can do their own dollar puppet TV shows. I like this idea. Good plan. It's all about getting them off the screens, isn't it? It is. And the other way to do that is get to a pool, whether your own or a community pool. Get your kids into one. Make it interesting by having games they can play in the pool. Diving to recover treasure is my kids' A favorite two to three hours of pool and they're they're the walking <laughs> dead by the time they're home we use it every day and build our day around it love this i really like that idea and i have to say you bet you definitely get another two months of uh, play outside if you get wet basically if the children are wet then you'll be able to play outside for a bit longer so we just literally transport the lego to the pool not the really tiny bits because they get lost in the filter of course but the bigger pieces you can just take the whole toy basket those that are 
you know, that, that, that are waterproof and just bring it to the side of the pool and the children stand in the water and fiddle with it that way. And that is in our community pool. You know, we don't have, we don't have one in the garden. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. We are going to turn our attention away from childhood obesity uh, for a few minutes because uh, Arab Film Studio, which is Image Nation's free training programme for aspiring filmmakers, is celebrating its 10th anniversary. The initiative runs intensive programmes to teach things like narrative film, uh, documentary and script writing, and they also run summer programmes for MRT teenagers. Now, the organisation over the past decade has trained around 350 participants from 80 nationalities, sorry, from 38 nationalities, don't know where 80 came from, uh, including 170 Emiratis, many of whom who've gone on to have successful careers in film and television. Have a quick listen uh, to this because it's called Off the Grid and this is one of those uh, successful films that was made uh, by one of the alumni from the Arab Film Studio. The moment I tell someone I live in a tent, they laugh. And then I have to explain that I'm serious. And then they laugh again. And then, then I have to swear that I'm serious. And then they're like, is it even legal? No, it's not. <laughs> So that's a clip there from uh, Off the Grid, which is one of the short films produced by one of the alumni from Arab Film Studio. Now, joining me now uh, to discuss the course and its success is Michael Garin. He is the CEO of 2454 and Image Nation. Uh, Mr. Garin, lovely to have you on the line. Thank you for joining us. Nice to see you again. Absolute pleasure. Now, tell me, what form do these courses take? Because it sounds like they are, whatever form they are, they're very successful. Right. Well, as you know from your own experience at uh, the BBC and uh, now Dubai Eye, um, there are two elements to being successful in our industry. The first is talent, which uh, the UAE is dripping with. But the second is uh, experience and training. And this is a real challenge that we've had uh, since I've arrived 15 years ago because there are plenty of programs to uh, train and develop people in, uh, in, in parts of the world where our industries have been established for nearly 100 years. We all know the famous stories of Barry Diller and Ari Emanuel David Geffen starting in the mailroom of William Morris, but if there's no William Morris here, there's no mailroom, there's no opportunity to start at the ground floor. So we, that's really the inspiration for our film studios. You know, what you do, because everybody has conversations, looks easy. Everybody watches television, everybody goes, everybody eats. So they think that these professions uh, are things that they can do, but they're professions and they require training and and rigor, and that's what we provide. What sort of people are signing up for the courses? Well, this is an interesting question because one of the challenges that uh, I've faced and our industry faces is that our business from the outside looks very glamorous. So we attract everybody who thinks that this is a great business and lots of fun and meet all these talented uh, actors and actresses and become famous themselves. But in fact, it's a business. And it's um, so uh, we, we get everybody, but quite quickly, because these are very rigorous programs, we filter out the people who are 
uh, not serious about uh, their craft and developing their skills. And by the end of the program, we have people who, as you said, ready to start their professional careers. I mean, we just played uh, one of the sections there. Uh, Sarah Hassan directed that short film called Off the Grid. She's obviously one of your success stories. Have you had uh, any other notable success stories you'd like to tell me about? Well, uh, we have, but, um, you know, probably the two of the, 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 the best stories I can tell you is uh, our very first um, winner of the Arab Film Studio competition, uh, Fatima al-Dahari, um, was 17, uh, 10 years ago. And uh, she uh, w- was so talented, so young, and... Um, I met with her before she went off to university and I said, look, if you want to be a storyteller, you have to have stories to tell. So don't study anything about film, study psychology, study history, study literature, get a liberal arts education. And then uh, you'll learn your craft uh, later on if this is what you want to pursue. And she came back to see me after she graduated, said, this is uh, what I, I followed your advice. And now uh, Fatima is uh, one of the stars of Image Nation, overseeing the development of film and television programs and uh, contributing an enormously to uh, the success of our company. One of the uh, things that I'm most proud of, uh, Image Nation has won two Academy Awards. We've won two BAFTA Awards. We've won 12 uh, Emmys. And uh, over 60% of our staff are Emirati. And um, 10 years ago, this would have been unthinkable, but because of the rigor and uh, discipline that we've brought to the training and development of our teams, they really now operate at a level that they could compete uh, uh, on a global basis. Similarly, um, Amnal Nuez made uh, a a documentary that still blows me away to this day on uh, female genital mutilation. Uh, And um, this uh, has won wards all over the world. And now she's a a leading editor and uh, filmmaker herself. And it's just one of many uh, success stories we have throughout film studios. I mean, my next question was going to be, do you think the nascent creative community in Abu Dhabi is gaining momentum? But by what you've just told me, I don't think it's really nascent anymore if you're winning uh, Academy Awards. Yeah, it's not nascent. But, uh, you know, it's also not just Abu Dhabi. We're based in Abu Dhabi. But the UAE and even the Gulf are too small to have uh, competitions between Emirates and uh, even within other nations. So um, we try actually to develop the industry for the benefit of the industry. Of course, we like to see things happen in Abu Dhabi. But, for example, al Kamin, the, the ambush, which was such an incredible uh, movie uh, and such an incredible success, um, was shot all in uh, Ras al-Khaimah. We, you know, the reason that we're successful is that the, what comes first is the is the production. We do what's best for the production. So we've shot movies literally all over the world, not only in the region but in Romania and the United States and and elsewhere. So the, the, so come to Abu Dhabi to learn, but then go back to where you came from to pr- pursue your profession. 
Michael Garren, thank you so much for your time. Really fascinating to hear about the success of that initiative, the Arab Film Studio, uh, celebrating its 10th anniversary. Uh, and Michael there, the CEO of 2454 uh, and Image Nation. Thank you for your time, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Have you a good so weekend. Much. Thank you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Uh, Welcome back to the show. And it is our Eye on Education special. This is the segment that we do every single Friday between uh, 11am and 1pm. It's our opportunity to basically put the spotlight on education stories, whether they're from nurseries or schools or universities, uh, both home and abroad. And this story actually comes from abroad because... The Times Higher Education Survey comes out every single year and it is a a basic, I mean, basically it's the go-to university rankings listings. I'm not quite sure how they managed to do it, uh, how they managed to become the main one that you go to. But essentially, if you're looking to find out which are the best universities in the world, the Times Education, the Times Higher Education Ranking is where you go. But I want to ask you first, whether you think it matters what university you attended, is university name dropping still a thing? Basically to either secure a position in a company or expand and your social and professional network. I can tell you on a personal level that the fact that I went to Newcastle University in the north of England literally never comes up, ever comes up. However, my husband, who fancy pants, went to both Cambridge and Oxford University because, you know, he likes to do things really well. Uh, that comes up quite a lot. So I think I have a theory that basically the, the smarter the university, the more likely you are to drop it into conversation. But first up, let's have a... So do get in touch with us if you want to offer your views on that, 4001 uh, or, of course, 04871 But let's take a closer look at that list to find out which universities here in the UAE and the wider region are ranking high. Right, Ellie Bothwell is the rankings editor for Times High. Education and thank you so much indeed, Ellie, because you have joined us on the line. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well indeed. A very lengthy uh, introduction there for you. Sorry, but I was just I wanted to get the question out to see whether people still felt uh, whether what university you went to matters. And I think it's fair to say uh, that if you go to a good university, it does indeed matter. So, what are the good universities in this region? Well, um, I think a lot of people might be familiar with our world university rankings, but um, this week we've published our impact rankings, um, which are maybe slightly different. And they use um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a framework. And what I think is interesting is that you don't actually always get the same um, sort of universities topping those rankings as you do our more sort of research focused rankings. So in our world university rankings at, at the very top, you have, you know, um, Oxford and, and Cambridge that, that, that you mentioned already, but also the sort of likes of Harvard and, and Stanford um, sort of on a global level. In our impact rankings, where we're really looking at, you know, the impact that universities have on the world, we have, um, you know, some some quite different names. So Western Sydney University comes out top, but we have King Abdulaziz University in Saudi Arabia um, in, in the Gulf region in there. We have um, University Sands Malaysia, and both of those universities are in, are in joint fourth place, actually. Um, so I think it really depends what what you're measuring um and i think what can be interesting is that actually we've, we've looked at quite traditional measures of prestige or, or or the world has looked at quite traditional measures of prestige for a long time in higher education but actually 
there are universities all around the world doing extraordinary things and maybe it's time to be looking at sort of their broader impact and not just their sort of teaching and research. How do you qualify that impact when you're looking at these rankings? Yeah, so we are we are looking at um, across sort of four broad areas. So 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 one of them is is sort of teaching, but it's not so much about um, um, so, so it's not really this kind of traditional metrics of teaching that we've always used. It's a bit more about you know what what students are actually sort of learning in the classroom or or, or the way their sort of education um, feeds into the the SDGs. Um, we're also looking at research, but again. Um, it's not just about sort of sheer numbers of publications. It's about sort of research that's specifically going into um, areas where there are huge problems like climate action or, or clean water. Um, we also look at stewardship. Um, so that's essentially the idea of universities themselves being big organisations in their local communities and then outreach. So any work that universities do with local government or national government, um, with industry, um, again, with, with this sort of general public to um, ensure that they're helping to sort of tackle and, and solve those SDGs in, in their wider communities. So it's, it's sort of much more broad than just the sort of, um, you know, curriculum that, that you might study or um, the sort of specific yeah, research areas that a university has. So you mentioned there the sustainable development goals. I mean, are these rankings for students to look at and think, oh, I'd quite like to go to a university that prioritises the sustainable development goals? Or are they more just for, I suppose, for people in the industry? So for universities themselves to sort of rally against each other? Yeah, they're for, for both and, and more, I'd say. So I think I think there's a sense there where, um, you know, the university, the, the, the SDGs, are, you know, obviously really important goals. And for universities to know sort of whether they're um, working towards them, we obviously need to measure that. And then they need to see which areas they, they can improve. So they're certainly a really useful tool for universities to use internally. But we also know that sustainability is becoming really important for students. So um, we've surveyed prospective international students and we found that actually a lot of them are, are um, using sustainability as a factor when they're ultimately choosing which university to enroll in. So if they've applied to five universities and they've got into all of them and there are a couple that they're, they're really keen on, sustainability actually might be the fact that they use to decide which out of a couple of universities to ultimately study at. Um, we know that for some students, they're actually thinking that sustainability is more important than location. This is main, mainly for students that, that will be willing to sort of travel um, to go to university. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly not just something that's only used by the industry. And, it, you know, in sustainability is, is really important for students. And we know that they're, that they're using this as a factor. It's also important for, for local communities, I think, for the general public, um, particularly in areas where, um, you know, universities are publicly funded for for people to know that their money is sort of being used well by these institutions that um that they're actually you know using that money to solve huge problems in society that is then going back into those communities to to help them so i think um yeah it's helpful for for all sorts of stakeholders it's so interesting to hear there that sustainability is is so important to students nowadays that feels like a real uh, shift change certainly since i was at university a good 20 
25 years ago. Uh, I mean, the UAE is featured in the top 300. We've got Alain University and the University of Sharjah. Uh, what was it about those universities that, that got them into that uh, that sort of that top 300 status? Because this is a world ranking. So they've done well to do that. Yeah, so we've, um, I mean, that we, so we measure um, across all the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, so in many cases, it's about sort of um, how well the universities have performed in, in um, you know, in various goals. So they, they don't have to perform well across all of the, across the whole board, because obviously that, that's a lot of different areas. But we can see that Alain um, performs really well in, um SDG four, which is quality education. Um, that, that, that's not really so much about the quality of its sort of higher education. That's more to do with them um, sort of um, pedagogy and sort of lifelong learning and, and broader education goals. And also in SDG five, gender equality. And, and the University of Sharjah um, performs well in that area as well. Um, but in order to do well in the um, overall impact ranking, um, there's one area where all universities have to sort of submit data, and that's um, SDG 17, which is partnerships for the goals. Um, and so universities have to be shown to um, be sort of collaborating with others around the sustainable development goals, because, um, you know, no one institution is going to be able to solve um, these huge problems alone. Um, and so we're asking for sort of evidence that they work with um, governments, whether that's local or national, um, that they work with sort of um, NGOs or, or charities, um, that they're working with sort of other institutions and, and um, people in, in locally in their regions or even internationally. Um, so I think that would be a key sort of, um, yeah, a key takeaway maybe is that um, really to perform well, you have to be sort of collaborating with others. And, and, and this, this isn't so much about sort of, competition this is about sort of universities and, and others all coming together to try and achieve the goals really interesting stuff fascinating to hear about the different ways in which uh, uh, people well in which the times higher education is assessing universities not just on how good the teaching is not just on how good a degree you get but also on these sustainability uh, sustainable development goals thank you so much uh, ellie bothwell great to have you on the radio thank you for your time it's been a pleasure Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, that was Ellie Bothwell, uh, Rankings Editor for Times Higher Education. Right. Amazing to hear there that the the kids of today, the students of today genuinely care uh, more about the environment and how sustainable their university is than maybe even than its location. Uh, Absolutely fascinating. Definitely not something that I was considering 25 years ago. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Welcome back. We are turning our attentions away from uh, how environmentally or sustainable, uh, how environmentally friendly or sustainable university is to the downright dirty trick of cheating. Because more students than ever before are apparently cheating at university and it's because it's getting easier. That's due to websites advertising their essay writing services. They're basically called commercial essay mills, which are an expression I hadn't heard before. Uh, But these websites have now got so sophisticated that they're even offering 
buy one, get one free deals. There's loyalty schemes. Uh, there's even high street style cashback offers. Uh, and that has gradually emerged uh, thanks to a conference in the UAE. And experts are warning of growing normalisation of cheating in higher education. Uh, Michael Draper is a professor in legal education at the University of Swansea. He's also an expert on academic integrity and cheating. And he rather brilliantly joins us on the line now. Uh, we're also live on Microsoft Teams and on Facebook, so you can watch us if you want to. Uh, <laughs> Professor Draper, how are you? Uh, well, very good morning or indeed probably afternoon, uh, Georgia. Uh, good to be with you. Yeah, it has just about hit the afternoon for us. Uh, but thank you very much indeed for coming on air. Uh, have you caught students using essay writing services? Can you uh, can you spot them? Uh, yes, you can. Um, why students use essay writing services normally is because you get a bespoke essay written, which is difficult for text matching software such as Turnitin uh, to pick up. But if uh, a lecturer or tutor knows the writing style of a student uh, and can compare that with previous work uh, previously submitted, then it's much more uh, difficult for um, students to actually uh, fool or deceive uh, the institution. So, yes, you can. And uh, basically by looking at previous work. Do you know, I hadn't realised that they were bespoke essays. I somehow presumed that this was a sort of factory where you got sent the same one. But, but you can no. actually pay for a bespoke, even like a 3000 word essay. Yeah, and basically you get different standards of essays. So you can basically ask for a, a first-class essay or indeed something a bit lower down. And if you basically want to meet the similar standard to what you've got before, you can, you can go for that. So you can actually specify the standard of essay that you want. And do A-grade ones cost more? Uh, absolutely, as in... Indeed, if you want it within a quicker period of time, the speed that you want the essay, that will all factor into the price, of course. All of this uh, uh, is, is cheating, and in certain countries, it is uh, illegal for those services to be offered. And I'd just like to point out that yesterday, I'm pleased to say that in England, um, the commercial supply of these commercial essays or essay mills became illegal uh, in England. Wow, gosh, that is absolutely fascinating. Do you have a sense of how much they cost? I mean, is it an expensive thing to do to buy an essay? Uh, well, it, it depends basically on uh, the provider you're using. It can be a few hundred pounds, uh, depending on the type of essay you want. And uh, uh, I think I have heard, but I've never seen this, that uh, PhD theses have also been uh, supplied. Uh, but of course, you'll pay a lot more for that. So yes, prices do vary. So about £200, um, if I'm going to translate it into dirhams here, that is about 1,000 dirhams. So that is not a prohibitive sum. You know, if, you, if you've if you got an essay crisis and you haven't done the work, then, you know, that, that isn't bad at all as far as, as, far as cost. Uh, I mean, it is, of course, illegal. So what, what are the telltale signs if you are looking at an essay and you're thinking, hang on a second, what's going on here? Well, uh, if I was looking at an essay, I'd look at uh, basically the standard of writing, um, the sentence structure, the grammar, the punctuation, but also the, the content itself and whether or not the essay as a whole looks right. Um, and particularly, as I said, in relation to work previously submitted uh, by the students, if the, the phrasing of the, the essay is, is different to that previously submitted, you've got to ask the question why that is. And that's why 
most uh, well-defined procedures and institutions will have a preliminary conversation with a, a student uh, to just explore basically why it is the essay has been written in that way before any further action is taken. I mean, what type of action can be taken? Have you had students, you know, have you heard of students being thrown off courses effectively? Absolutely. I mean, commissioning where you buy a, an essay for a commercial service is considered to be the most serious uh, type of uh, academic misconduct uh, offence. Uh, obviously, students commit plagiarism sometimes inadvertently, and that's basically a question of improving students' skills. But if you've actually deliberately intended to cheat, gone out and bought an essay, then most providers will have regulations which state that in those circumstances, when proven, the student is withdrawn or uh, from the course or basically expelled from the institution. But they must be slipping through, right? Like, I mean, how damaging is it that, that students can get, a, you know, on in many occasions must be getting away with this? Yeah, obviously, um, you're not going to catch uh, everybody. Um, I'm I'm sure that some students are successful in, in submitting work which has basically been uh, obtained illegally or through cheating. Um, now, you know, if you're a, a medical student going into the medical profession, if you're an engineer uh, building physical structures, etc., and you've not really done the work or learned, and then you're exposed to members of the public, that is a serious issue for members of the public. Oh, my goodness, that so, scares the life out of me. If I think about the medical <laughs> students that I was at university with and some of the ways, I mean, they scraped through some exams. The idea that some of them, they just completely, you know, get someone else to write the essay is genuinely terrifying. It's not good, is it? No, it's really horrifying. I mean, how many of these websites are there out there? Um, well, I mean, there's a comparison website I know in, in the UK, which I think the last time I looked had a, over a thousand entries against it, with more being added uh, each month. So globally, we're talking a, a, lot of inter- a, a lot of commercial providers. Now, they may have different names, and I suspect that uh, there are a number of organisations, just like any other corporate structure, will have different brand names, but in fact, it's the same organisation behind it. Really interesting to speak to you. So I had no idea that this type of thing was going on. We've got people getting in touch with us saying it absolutely is possible. It does seem to be happening. Uh, lots of people are are basically asking, uh, getting their essays written for them and getting away with it. Uh, so it is a fascinating topic. I, I suppose one question remaining would be that maybe essays are no longer the right way to assess students. Or do you think they still have a place despite this plagiarism? Um. I personally think that uh, a reflective piece of work still has a place, but you're absolutely right. Um, Lecturers, tutors, those actually setting examinations, assessments have certainly upped their game and and changed the way that students are uh, being assessed. And of course, uh, with more uh, online assessment, there's been a move also to online uh, proctoring, that is online invigilation students so that they can't access these services uh, during an assessment. So, Yes, there is a response from the the, uh, educational professions in relation to this issue. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Really appreciate it. Uh, Professor Michael Draper, Professor in Legal Education at the University of Swansea and an expert on academic integrity and cheating. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Georgia. Thank you very much indeed. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. 
Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Now, we are uh, discussing my classroom at 12.35 every single week, every Friday. Uh, Basically, we take a look at a classroom in an unusual place. We've gone everywhere from the jungle uh, in Bali uh, to uh, where else did we go? We've gone to oh, oh, to the uh, we were uh, on a rural farm uh, in Africa, uh, in Tanzania. So we literally have gone to all sorts of different locations to find out what it's like to teach in a classroom uh, in somewhere different. Now, today we are going to be going to a Palestinian, going to a refugee camp, uh, specifically a refugee camp for Palestinian refugees. I'm joined on the line now by Marit Bilaga, who is Acting Director of Education for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian uh, Refugees. Thank you so much for joining us on the line, sir. A pleasure to have you joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, uh, Ryder. Uh, glad to be here and, 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 and glad to be a voice of uh, honor and of the work that we do. It is, um, I have to say, this is one of my favorite segments each week because it is an opportunity for us to sort of step outside our normal worlds and imagine what it would be like to be uh, in a refugee camp and to have our children going to school there. Tell me a bit more about uh, the work of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. With, uh, with with great pleasure, uh, I appreciate that this is, of course, a kind of an excursion into an unknown world for uh, many of the listeners and, and viewers in Dubai. But unfortunately, the, the refugee camp is is not an unusual, uh, you know, like environment, of course, for many Palestine refugees. The UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Work Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, has been created in 1950 uh, as a response to the fact that uh, several uh, Palestinians, uh, you know, uh, became uh, refugees after that point in time and has provided uh, basic services for those refugees, most notably in the fields of education, health and relief and social services. We operate in five fields, Gaza, West Bank, uh, Jordan, uh, Syria and, uh, and, 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 and Lebanon. We operate in camps, uh, but also outside to make sure that, uh, you know, Palestine refugees have got access to the same basic services as citizens all around the world. How many displaced Palestinian children are part of your education program? Well, we've got uh, three sub-programs within our education program. There's the general schools education program, where we registered around 550,000 school students. So you can imagine this is an enormous system. We're actually uh, the size of a small country that is, however, not relying on the a governance mechanism of a, of a normal country. But in addition to that, we've got around 8,000 students enrolled in technical and vocational education and training to give them the skills that they can use in their communities uh, to, on the one hand, uh, sustain their own livelihoods, but also provide those skills that the community itself needs to, uh, to function. In addition to that, we've got around 2,000 uh, teacher trainees who are being trained at the university level in specialized uh, education science faculties operating in uh, the West Bank and and, uh, and Jordan. And we serve them with around 20,000 staff, of which around 17,000 uh, teachers uh, who are almost exclusively Palestine refugees themselves. I am absolutely staggered by that number. 550,000 children are in refugee schools that you guys run. I mean, that, that's absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, no, don't worry. There's a slight delay on the name. I'm, I'm just genuinely absolutely staggered by it. it. It is quite incredible. And many people are not aware of the sheer scale on which uh, UNRWA is operating 
the challenges we're facing in providing those uh, you know basic services to uh, around uh, uh, 5.6 million Palestine uh, refugees. I mean, many of these refugee camps have been established for for many decades. So, you know, I, I, I suppose I suppose when I close my eyes and imagine a refugee camp, quite often I I think I would think of tents and people who've only very recently been displaced. When of course that that isn't the reality at all. People have you know remained displaced for decades at a time. Can you describe what the schools are like? What the learning environment is like in some of the learning centres that you have in in Palestine? Absolutely. Uh, it is true uh, entirely that uh, the, the, the camps don't rely on tents anymore overall. But as you can imagine, uh, from the outset, the space that has been allocated to the camps has always been relatively limited, uh, whereas the Palestine refugee population has grown. So, uh, you know, uh, a growing number of refugees has had to, uh, you know, build their uh, their shelters, has uh, to build their homes uh, mainly through the agency uh, on a very limited space. So even though there's no tents, uh, it really isn't very attractive. And 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 of course we know that uh, Palestine refugee camps are often also the focus of conflict, which then reflects in, uh, in 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 destruction through no fault of the refugees uh, of the refugees themselves. So so very often actually the school is a quite pleasant place in a very very unpleasant environment and we keep uh, try to keep it uh, that way that doesn't mean that our schools are a haven of luxury uh, absolutely not but i would like to uh, distinguish between three types of environment first of all of course we're talking about the physical environment and we're uh, building what we call so-called purpose-built schools which meet quality standards uh, you know no luxury but but certainly uh, good learning environments but often we have to also use uh, rented schools which can be you know, quite uh, the, uh, the, the, the dilapidated. Uh, however, what for us is also important is a non-physical environment. We want there to be a good environment, a positive environment, uh, where there is no uh, violence, where children can escape uh, from all the troubles that exist in the camps. And therefore, we are uh, rolling out a number of very important initiatives. Uh, we're trying to strengthen our psychosocial support to uh, Palestine refugees. Uh, I would like to emphasize that entering grade one in Gaza, over one quarter of Palestine refugee students enters grade one with severe symptoms of trauma. That's a horrible situation in and of itself. It's also a mortgage on the future. So to make sure that the non-physical environment uh, stays uh, you know, healthy, we need to intervene in terms of providing psychosocial support. And that's what we try to do. But of course, we run up against funding challenges there. We've got a, a school health strategy. We've got an addressing violence against children in uh, schools strategy, which all try to make sure that also the non-physical environment in which Palestine children uh, learn uh, is, is is healthy and, and positive. And finally, we're now increasingly constructing also a digital environment through an ICT for education strategy that has recently been uh, approved by the agency. I mean, the reality in these schools, it, it sounds like it, I mean, I mean, it must be so difficult because you've got students who've, who've already struggled and suffered and then you're trying to bring them into a school environment where they're expected to sit and, and or you try to get them to sit and listen and to learn. Do you do the children want to come to school? Do they enjoy the school? You know, are they are they um, are they happy environments ultimately? 
you know it's it's it's, uh, it's so true what you're saying uh, uh georgia i mean it's it it is very difficult outside the schools and of course we try to do everything uh, for the children to make sure that at least they've got a certain routine that at least they can uh you know enjoy a certain uh, degree of, uh, of 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 safety in in the schools and the funny thing is that during the covid-19 pandemic when we had school closures uh, you know, I believe that in other countries of the world, children would say, well, uh, I'm fine uh, at home. Of course, it, it didn't really work out that way. Uh, in reality, you know, children all across the world uh, wanted to go back to schools. But that phenomenon was especially strong among Palestine refugee children, because you can imagine that if you grow up in a large family, in a very uh, small shelter with uh, very little space, where sometimes five, six, seven siblings are sharing a room, and sometimes that room is only divided from the parents' room by a, you know, a blanket or some kind of piece of textile that's hung up in the physical space. And that is not a conducive environment in general. And it's certainly not a conducive environment for learning. And of course, uh, then the school becomes a very attractive place where the children can express themselves artistically. We try to do a lot in that regard, where we have got uh, physical education, where, of course, they can socialize with others and with their teachers and they enjoy what we call a certain level of uh, protection. What's the ratio of teacher to students to give us a sense of how busy your schools are? Um, That is one of the enormous uh, challenges that we're uh, facing. Uh, You might have heard that the agency has been facing uh, funding challenges over the past few years. Uh, In the past few years, when we got to the end of the year, we weren't sure whether we were able to pay the basic salary to our staff, which has caused an enormous level of anxiety. It's really hard to imagine, whereas I believe you operate extremely efficiently as an agency. And I believe any investment in UNRWA is an investment in the future of the region. Um, We uh, cap the number of uh, students per classroom or per teacher at 50. So those are already huge classrooms. We aim for having an average class size of not more than 40. And certainly we don't want to have classes that are smaller than 20 because uh, of course, that would not be an ap- optimal uh, value uh, for, 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 for money, which, of course, is also important. But uh, classes tend to be very large. Uh, I would say that, that, that certainly around 40 uh, uh, children per, uh, per classroom asset is the average. And in the sometimes cramped rooms that we have, this is not an optimal uh, environment for learning, unfortunately. Uh, and do you, how do you teach the children? It, you know, if you're having trouble even paying your staff, then it must be difficult to come by, you know, the basics like pens and paper and, and books. Uh, well, fortunately, the, the, the pens and papers, they, 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 they are covered. Uh, so, so that is not the main challenges that we're facing. But, you know, uh, apart from that, almost any challenge that you can imagine, mention it and, and we've uh, gone through it. We've gone through the conflict in Syria that we're all familiar with. We've, we are now going through the a socioeconomic meltdown in Lebanon that we're all familiar with. We're going through the incursions in Gaza that we're all familiar with. The poverty in 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 uh, you know in in Jordan it is all quite uh, unimaginable. And and those extremely resilient teachers keep on teaching and keep achieving successes uh, jointly with uh, their children, which is truly you know uh, incredible. Uh, on a recent mission to, to to Gaza, I visited the classroom, and you know that the blackboard for us is of course as educators quite symbolic. Uh, of what education is about, because the blackboard is the physical space where the teacher tries to show something to uh, the students where she uh, or he uh, tries to uh, teach. And and, and that was uh, just after the 
uh, incursion into Gaza that had taken place after the exchanges of uh, fire that, 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 that you know, uh, most listeners and viewers will be familiar with. And what you saw on the blackboard were literally the shards of a, a missile of a projectile. So, so I think that uh, that was quite symbolic. I mean, in spite of what we want, this is uh, the reality that the children are faced with. And it is not uh, it is not uh, it is not necessarily a, a positive one. And of course, the education system, we try to do everything in our power to still give those children what I think they deserve, uh, quality education in line with United Nations Sustainable Development Goal uh, SDG 4. So thank you so much for talking us through that. It was um, a very... I mean, a really heart-rending interview, to be honest. It's really striking to hear the circumstances under which your teachers are managing to educate large numbers of children in those war-torn areas. So thank you very much for coming on the radio. I wish you all the best and the organisation all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you very much indeed. That was uh, Moritz Billiger. He is Acting Director of Education for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. It is a UN agency that supports the relief and human development of Palestinian refugees. That's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.